Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, let me welcome you to Fellowship Bible Church, too. I've been away a couple weekends, so uh, it's just been great to be back with you. I feel like I should have filled out a visitor's card or something when I came in uh, this morning. Um, We were at the elders' retreat a couple weekends ago, and we'll be sharing some more of that next week with you. We uh, made a decision to kind of move a special prayer time to the end of the service this morning, so we're looking forward to doing that. Um, But we'll share with you some of the outcomes of that elders' retreat next weekend. And then last weekend, I had the privilege of being... um, at uh, my granddaughter's baby dedication at a local church here. And so Kim and I had the privilege of that. And there's nothing quite, I was warned, there's nothing quite like being a grandparent. A friend of mine said as a grandparent, he said, when they come to your house, they'll put on their little backpack, they'll run up, jump into your arms and say, hi, grandpa. And you're going to say, go back to the car and let's do that again and again and again. Okay. So there is a privilege of uh, being a grandparent, but it's great to be back with you again. I want to thank Chris Kotalka, who uh, filled in in the pulpit, and Pastor Scott, um, who brought the energy last week as well. So it's just great. I was thinking, as I listened to those guys online, that the communication style is different, but the Bible is always the same, right? And so that's one of the things that should be a point of you understanding something about Fellowship Bible Church. It's not about the charisma, it's not about the personality, but it is about God's Word. So with that in mind, will you stand with me for the reading of the Word? Acts chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning, and I'll be reading the first 11 verses. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. You may be seated. We uh, find three lessons in, uh, this morning's, in this morning's text. And here they are. And uh, I'm just going to have you say them with me, too. Here's the first one. And it's a great reminder that God is at work. In the opening chapters of the book of Acts, you just know that God is at work. He's moving people. They're responding. So here are the three lessons. Let's say them together. When God allows difficulty, it's purposeful. When God changes a life, it's undeniable. And when God sends his son, it's proclaimable. Now, the last one had an exclamation point behind it, okay? So you got to do a little bit better than that, all right? Um, I know you maybe yelled out from last weekend, but that's okay, okay? So let's try it again. When God allows difficulty, it's purposeful. When God changes a life, it's undeniable. When God sends his son, a little bit better. That's great. Okay. So let's talk about that first one. 
When God allows difficulty, it's purposeful. In the text, we read about a man who had been born lame from birth. And there's two ways to look at this, and and both are applicable to everybody who's here today. Either you're going through difficulty or you know somebody who's going through difficulty. And if you're going through difficulty, there's some lessons you can learn. And if you know someone who's going through difficulty, there's also some things you can do. So let's unpack those together. Here's the first one. If you're going through difficulty, see it as, short, as, as short-term investment for long-term gain. Okay? If you're going through difficulty, see it as short-term investment for long-term gain. Now, for just a moment, I want you to go back and imagine what it must have been like, how routine and mundane this man's life was. He has been, the text says, a man lame from birth, and he's being carried. No electric wheelchairs, no wheelchairs at all, really. The only way he can be transported is that people pick him up and carry him someplace. Now, again, just a reminder, this is a man who went that day to the temple expecting the same. In fact, they gathered at the temple because um, it was a Jewish kind of tradition that you needed to that when you worship the Lord, you would also give to the Lord. And so the beggars would kind of pull up outside of that gate so that when people went in, they'd be right there. It was pretty prime real estate if you're a beggar and you needed to make some money. He had no means of working. He goes that morning with short-term suffering. You say, wait wait a minute, Phil. You just told me he was lame from birth. That's right. But on this day, something's going to happen. And God releases the suffering and allows him to walk. He is not expecting it. Short-term investment for long-term suffering. This for for long-term investment. Short-term suffering for long-term investment. Here's the idea. The man was lame from birth, but he doesn't know what the rest of his life holds. And it's about to hold something special. I'm reminded of this as well. Wherever you are today, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 4. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, you say, Phil, my my affliction is not light and it's not momentary. Compared to this it is, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And God makes the comparison beyond all comparison. So this is this great reminder. Whatever you're going through now, recognize it's a short-term investment for long-term gain. Here's the second idea. Work towards a spirit of contentment while you wait. Work towards a spirit of contentment while you wait. That's right. Spirit of contentment while you wait. I was thinking of that in this verse, in Acts chapter 3, verse 2. There was a man, lame from birth, being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. For all this man knew that was his life. Because he was lame from birth, from start to finish, that would be his life. You don't see him there. There's no record of them there complaining. People walk by him. Some give, some don't. You just see him there doing the same thing over and over and over again. I don't know what you go through. I know some of the things I've gone through. And the thing I tend to struggle with is just a spirit of contentment in it. And so I'm drawn to a passage like this by the Apostle Paul. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, this is what you've got to love about the context. If you only quote the first part of that, you miss verse 13, which says, 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Which means, for you and me, contentment isn't tied to getting what we want. It's tied to our dependence upon Christ who strengthens us. Now, you just got to let that thought settle in a little bit. If you struggle with discontentment, it's not about getting more things. It's not about getting a different situation. It's not even about getting a different marriage. It's rather that you and I would learn in that difficulty to be strengthened by Christ, because that's how we do all things, including contentment. And then there's one final one here. Here it is. Look for ways to glorify God, not self. When this man is healed and he stands up, he is jumping in the worship service. Okay, I just want to say that for a moment. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if someone got up in the worship service and started jumping up and down. And you say, why are you jumping up and down? And they said, because I couldn't walk until this morning. You and I would say, who is your PT? Like, I got to meet that guy, right? Like, this man is only seeking to glorify God, not self. And by the way, you'll see in a moment, that's also what Peter does. When everybody's coming, running to Peter for him to preach, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, I just want to let you know, this isn't about what we're doing. This is what he says in Acts chapter 3. This is about what Jesus did. Because he was raised up, this man was raised up in the name of Jesus. And there it is in the text. You've got to love this. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So whatever you're going through in difficulty, you want to look for ways to realize it's short term, okay, in relation to eternity, to look for ways to be contentment, and finally, to look for ways to praise God and glorify God in it. In fact... I love the way that it kind of confirms what's going on back in the book of Isaiah, which, by the way, would have been written 700 years earlier. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, happened under Jesus. And the eyes of the deaf unstopped, happened under Jesus. The ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What was testimony of this man leaping was he was doing exactly what Isaiah 35, 700 years earlier, said he would do. Now, let me give you three things you need to know if you know somebody in difficulty, right out of the text. If you see someone in difficulty, three things. Don't pass them by. Recognize their value. Help as you are able. Okay? Don't pass them by. Um, you know if you've ever visited any other location besides Mullica Hill, okay, that there are homeless people that live, particularly in the big urban centers of our world. And it's very easy when you see a row of homeless people to just kind of walk past them, right? Remember years ago, we had a college group come down here, and, uh, and they did a Christmas concert for us. And, and they, after doing the Christmas concert, we asked every home that they were staying in to make them a bag lunch for meals. And we took them over to Philadelphia because it was Christmas time. It was a really cool event, right? It was like we take them over there for the afternoon. They, they sung. Um, they just spontaneously started singing in, uh, in, um, in, this, in the city building there. And their voices were echoing off the arches. It was really a cool event. And I said, hey, it's time probably for you guys to stop. Let's just stop and have your lunches, like you brought your lunches. And I remember, you know what they said to me? They said, uh, we don't have our lunches. I said, oh, you ate them early? They said, no, there were people here without lunches. And they had given away all their lunches to the homeless people that were there because they had something, and they weren't just looking to pass them by. And I love this. Look at how Peter does this. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. 
Now, if you've ever engaged with someone who is struggling or begging or um, maybe homeless in that scenario and they're looking for a gift, you know that the one thing you don't want to do is look at them, right? Because when you look at them, they expect something from you. I love this. That's the one thing Peter did. He stopped. He looked at this man. He didn't pass him by. Now, he's got no gold. He's got no silver. But he knows what he does have. He stops and looks at this man. And notice what else he does. He recognizes their value. He, he, when you see someone in difficulty, you recognize their value if you just pause. And I love this phrase. This is so good. Look at verse 4. And Peter had his gaze, as did John, and said, look at us. Make eye contact with me. Here's the guy, arms up, asking for an alm, is probably too ashamed to make eye contact. And Peter says, hey, 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 look at me, look at me. Just to do that demonstrates value. To make eye contact says, you are important. You're just not a beggar, ashamed. I see something else here. So critical. Uh, when Back before the COVID crisis changed the way we do hospital visitations, um, I would make routine hospital visitations when our people would be over in Philadelphia. And every time I'd go, I would realize I'm coming past at various stoplights and those, those hospitals, people who are homeless. And, and so I, I purchased a whole set of Dunkin' Donut cards, like $5 cards, and I, and I kept them in my car so that I could just pull those out. And then one day my kids discovered them, okay? But, but up until then, up until then, okay, it was great. I always had this stash of $5 Dunkin' Donut cards in my car. And you say, well, well Phil, do you really think they needed a donut and coffee? Uh, no, I think they needed to know that someone noticed them, right? That someone just said, hey, I'll look in your eyes. And I can still remember to this day what it was like to look into the eyes of a woman whose eyes were seeping something and realizing how broken she was just to look at her recognizes the value of the person. Now, get this. You have people in your world that are in difficulty? Don't say, oh, no, not them again. It is your opportunity to recognize their value by being involved with them again. You see someone in difficulty, don't pass them by, recognize their value. And here's the last thing. Help as you are able. Help as you are able. I love this. Peter doesn't have gold and silver, but that doesn't stop him. He doesn't look around and say, no Dunkin' Donut cards on me. I don't know what I can do. Okay. He does something else entirely. In fact, you see it in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. And just look at your text to capture it. It's just remarkable how he says it. He says, uh, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. There it is, right? Just underline those words. What I do have, I give to you. I can give you this. Help as you are able. Whatever your ability, whatever your gift, use that. I have a friend when he works with the homeless people in Philadelphia. He says, Phil, I give them a job, right? I try to give them a job. Now, it doesn't work out often, but he's helping as he is able. And then he says this. What I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
rise up and walk. Now, let me just unpack that for you for a second. Uh, We aren't Hebrew or Semitic. Our church isn't. You may be, have grown up in that. But therefore, we need a little bit of an understanding of what's actually happening here. When someone says, in the name of, we think that's identifying or distinguishing a person. But in the Semitic thought, a name does not just identify or distinguish a person. It expresses the very nature of his being. Hence, the power of the person is present and available in the name of the person. So when Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk, he is saying, in the power of Jesus' name, stand up and walk. And the man does it. Now, for just a moment, just fast forward two decades later, imagine this guy sitting at a family reunion. Hey, 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 tell him the story again. Tell him the story again. Well, I was born lame. I could never walk. People carried me. I was a beggar. And uh, then one day, this man comes by and he says to me, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And I did. Just like that, I stood up. And I just kind of picture him recounting that testimony with generations of people around him who now understand that the very nature of Christ being, that is, his power was what raised this man. When God allows difficulty, it's purposeful. So if you're experiencing difficulty, recognize it's purposeful. If you are working with someone who's in difficulty, then work with them with patience and understanding, recognizing that it's purposeful. Here's the second idea. When God changes a life, it's undeniable. When God changes a life, it's undeniable. And we're not even to the best part of the story yet, okay? When God changes a life, it's undeniable. And we find that a little later in the book of Acts chapter 3. Um, we are not who we once were. We are not who we once were. This man was a lame man. He couldn't walk since birth. He'd been carried. He'd been carried as an elementary school kid. He'd been carried as a middle schooler. He'd been carried as a high schooler. This man couldn't walk. Okay? And yet this is how Acts chapter 3 reads. And all the people saw him walking. And look a little later. They knew him to be the one who was asking for alms. That is, he was a beggar there, but five minutes later, he is a man who is walking who will never beg again. This is remarkable. It's this great reminder that when you and I come to faith in Christ, we are not who we once were. The Bible is full of passages that communicate that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 um, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. You say, well, well, then why do I still struggle with the things of my old life, Phil? I just want to remind you, that is not who you are. There is a new man inside. It's not that you're the old man. There is a new man inside of you. That's what it means to be a new creation. That new man, however, still resides in, for me, resides in this body of flesh, which means even though I'm a Christian, I still have desires, I still have habits that I need to work on. That's what it means to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, not work for, but work out. So I have all of that stuff working. So you just have to pause and say, I'm not who I once was. You need to let that thought. We sung this morning... Uh, um, songs of freedom, like there it was, like we are free. You need to let that thought kind of grab you. You are not chained as you once were. 
We are not who we once were. Now, you still reside in a body of flesh. So that's an ongoing battle. And that's why it says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. Because again, and then it lists a whole slew of things that you could struggle with, but it reminds you, as Scott so eloquently preached last week, uh, that the fruit of the spirit is where we should be living. We are not who we once were. All the people saw him walking and they knew him to be somebody else before. My brother-in-law tells the story who was saved later in life of, and, uh, and by his own admission, had a pretty riotous background, and people knew him that way, that years later, he ran into an old friend, and the guy looked at him and said, is that you, Bill? Bill, is that you? And Bill said, I stepped back, and he said, yeah, that's me. And he said, man, you don't even look anything like you used to look. And Bill said, my only answer was to look at him and said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Here's the reminder, it should change us. The gospel just shouldn't be enough to say, Check that box, I'm going to heaven. The gospel is a reminder that Christ indwells us and he is in the process of changing us. Here's the second idea. We would not complain as much as we would praise him. When God changes a life, it's undeniable, which means the one thing that the Christian should not be is a complainer. He shouldn't be the grumbler, the complainer, because he knows what it's like to be set free. The Christian shouldn't be waking up every morning, reading their news app and saying, oh, the world is so bad. He should wake up every morning and say, this is a new day. Great is God's faithfulness today. I'm not going to complain. I want to praise. Look at this passage. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. There is no mention of him pausing in the first 30 seconds of his healing and looking at Peter and saying, what took you guys so long? I've been here for 25 years for crying out loud. I got 25 years of being carried everywhere. And now you show up and it just happens like this. There is no record of this man ever complaining. But the Bible's full of, in the Old Testament, of the Israelites being provided for by God and constantly, constantly complaining. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. We would not complain as much as we would praise him. So just for a moment, okay, this is kind of a mental check. Stop for a second and say, hmm, do people know me to complain more or to praise God more? And if you're a little uncertain about that, then kind of strum up your courage and ask the person next to you. Do you know me to complain more or do you know me to praise God more? And again, recognize that when God changes a life, that's one of the things that happens. Here's the third idea. We cannot, hide, we cannot hide change. We're different than we were. We cannot hide change. We're different than we were. And I love that. Wherever you are, if people don't know you're a believer because your life is a little different, not just because of what you believe, but also because of what you do, because you do take an interest in those who are experiencing difficulty, because you do pause, because you do care differently. We cannot hide change. We're different than we were. And I love that because the text actually says, and the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him. They understood that that's the guy who was lame 
and now he is jumping in the sanctuary. Um, the man's got springs in his legs, okay? Like, that's what they were seeing. They were seeing a marked difference from where he was and where he is. Now, for just a moment, if you grew up in a second generation, you're a third generation Christian, and you say, Phil, I didn't really have a big life to change from. I've been in church all my life. This is what I knew. Then they should be able to see a marked difference between who you are and, what ev- and how everybody else is. There still has to be a marked difference. There still has to be a marked difference because that's what we see when God is at work. Okay, say these with me. Here we go. When God allows difficulty, it's purposeful. When God changes a life... When God sends his son, that's exactly right. Now we're to the best part of the story, okay? All of that was introduction for this truth. We proclaim Jesus in two ways. By what we do, we've already covered that, okay? We proclaim Jesus by what we do. Peter and John stopped. They saw a man who was in need. They paused. They looked at him. They said, hey, this is what we, we're able to do this. Stand up and walk in the name of Jesus. And he stood up and walked, okay? So it has to do with what we do, but it also has to do with what we say, And this is so evident in the text because once you get into the rest of Acts chapter 3, you read verse 12, and then Peter saw it and addressed the people. He starts to say something. And a little later, verse 22, he says, Moses said, and a little later, verse 24, he says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also, here's your word, proclaimed these days, saying to Abraham, God made, God, God made a covenant with the fathers saying to Abraham, it's all about proclamation. It's about communicating the gospel, what God has done. So let's just unpack that, okay? And then we're done. Here we go. We proclaim Jesus by what we say. Here's the first thing. We tell the world God keeps his promises. We tell the world God keeps his promises. That's right. We recognize that in a world that looks really dark at times and really difficult and people are experiencing a lot of challenges and pain and uncertainty, we maintain that God keeps his promises. When someone begins to deconstruct their faith and they say, that's what I learned as a kid. Now that I'm older, I'm walking away from it. At some stage, I think it comes right to this issue. They have come to believe that God doesn't keep his promises. Now, I'm human, and I try not to break my promises, but I also am forgetful, so I, from time to time, I promise Kim something, and then all of a sudden, it just dawns on me that I didn't do it, right? I want to tell you something. That never happens to God. It doesn't. It doesn't happen to God. He does not forget what he promised. And I'll show you that in the text, because what's used here is a phraseology that they would have understood as Jewish people hearing the message was pointing back to the fact that God was a covenant-keeping God that kept his promises. He said, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Notice how he starts this whole message. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Every Jewish person sitting there would have known that this means this is the same God who made a promise who will keep it. Notice what else he says. Watch this. You are the sons, at the end of Acts chapter 3, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, and Jacob, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, just for a moment, stop there. This is a phrase taken out of Genesis chapter 12. It's a promise that God makes to Abraham when Abraham's like 90 years old and doesn't have, and, doesn't have, and, and, and uh, Isaac hasn't been born yet. Okay, that's pretty old to start a family, but that's where Abraham and Sarah found themselves. 
And so God makes this promise and he says, listen, Abraham, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have, you're going to have a land. You're going to have a people that's going to be as scattered as the sand of the sea. And you also are going to be a blessing. Your offspring shall bless all the families of the earth. And of course, this is a Genesis chapter 12, very clear prophecy because Peter makes it clear here what God was talking about. God, having raised up his servant, and referenced it a little earlier, the servant's name here is Jesus, okay? So God having raised up his servant, meaning this was the promise that God would send Jesus. Now, just for a moment, let's do the math, okay? Let's do the math. Abraham was born about 2000 um, B.C. Um, Moses came along about 1500 B.C. Uh, 1000 B.C., that's King David. About 500 B.C., that's Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's kind of your Old Testament in a nutshell. 2,000, 1,500, 1,500. Jesus is born around what we would know as the turn of the millennium. So what you got is you got 2,000 years. Now for just a moment. You say, I'd like for God to keep his promises. I'd just like him to keep them now. Okay? God keeps his promises. Even if it, even if it takes him 2,000 years because he's got it all figured out to bring his promise to completion. You and I are incredibly impatient, right? We tell the world God keeps his promises. Here's the second thing. We tell the world they need him. We tell the world they need him. Now, the cool thing about Peter's preaching is to remember that Peter was scared to death of of even a servant girl by the fire just a month and a half earlier, okay? And he denies Christ just like that, like it just comes right off his lips. I don't know the man. As Jesus turns and looks at him and then heads to the cross, right? This is Peter. And what you see now is boldness like you cannot possibly imagine. Because now he turns this text, and this is what he says. He's talking to all these Jewish people. By the way, picture it. Solomon's portico was the area of kind of their, it's huge columns, columns there. It's kind of an open courtyard, and it's right outside the temple itself. And so that's where they would gather. That's where Jesus would gather and teach. That's where people would come. They'd come and pray. And if a ruckus happened, like something started happening over there, everybody kind of drift over there. Like you didn't have cell phones, so you couldn't TikTok it. So you just ran over there and looked personally, see? And that's exactly what happens. Everybody moves over there because this man's jumping up and down. And everybody's saying, you see that guy who's jumping up and down? That's the guy who used to sit outside. He used to be lame, but look at him. He's walking, he's walking. So it's got a lot of attention. And when Peter gathers all of those Jewish people around him, this is what he says. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Whoa. Pilate said he was innocent numerous times. You said he's guilty. That's why you called for his crucifixion. You had a Roman governor say, I find no fault in this man. This man has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. And you kept saying he was guilty. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. When he decided to release him, Pilate said you can have him, but you chose the murder instead. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, that is Barabbas, to be granted to you. And here it comes. And you killed the author of life. Now, for just a moment, know that there's men and women in that group that were probably there that may have even voiced the words, crucify him. Wow. This is hard, cold truth. Right? Whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. You guys were there. You guys cried out, crucify him. From time to time... When I hear a testimony 
someone will start it like this. Okay. Well, I was saved when I was younger. I mean, I, I didn't murder anybody or anything. Okay. I wasn't a murderer. I, I think that testimony should be changed. Okay. And here's how it should sound. Um, I, I didn't murder anybody, but I could have. And I would have. You do understand that had we been there when Christ was going to the cross, we very likely would have been swept up in the emotion of the moment. Because bear in mind, he came in riding on a horse. We had a very definitive plan for what the king was going to do for us, set us free from Rome, and he didn't do it. And just think for a moment. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? Would you respond negatively? Would you respond angrily? Would you have used the words crucify him? What Peter points out is you guys need God even though you delivered him, denied him, and you even killed him in the person of Jesus. Okay, that's bad news, right? And right about then, everybody should be weeping in shame, and then Peter drops this bomb. We tell the world that God is gracious. Once they understand their need, we tell the world that God is gracious. And just look at the text. It's so beautiful. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. Okay, now, I understand the first part of that. That's comforting. I do not get the second part of that. The rulers were the religious leaders who wanted nothing to do but plot the death of Jesus. From the beginning, they were after him. And yet this is what Peter says. God's grace applies to you in your ignorance, and it also applied to your rulers and what they did. For just a moment, go back to the Passion Week. Um, Imagine what's happening. There's a big ruckus. Christ is up on the cross. Um, The religious leaders say, put him in a tomb, mark it, so the disciples don't don't take the body. And then all of a sudden, bad things, really, really supernatural things happen. An earthquake happens right on time. The veil of the temple, 30 feet tall, uh, the width of your hand thick, the curtain is actually is ripped in two. It, used, it was so heavy that it took 300 priests to take it out, to take it out and clean it. Um, and, and, and it's that thick. It's five or six inches thick. And it rips not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, something that could not be done. And you don't think you're afraid? Like you're a religious leader, you're talking like, what did we do? What did we do? What did we do? What did we do? And then you hear he's alive. He's resurrected. What is he going to do to me? Imagine if you murdered a person and then they came back fully alive to address you. It'd be pretty intimidating, wouldn't it? But you would definitely recognize your need and you would not expect grace. And Peter throws grace out there. You acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Remember how we started by saying suffering has purpose? If you want to find the purpose of it, you simply have to go back to the explanation of what Christ went through on our behalf. We proclaim Jesus by, we tell the world God keeps his promises, we tell the world they need him, we tell the world that God is gracious, and we tell the world to turn to him. We just tell the world to turn to him. And that is the essence of the gospel. We tell the world to turn to him. Here it is in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. 
After Peter preaches this message, he just says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now, this is beautiful. Remember how we said, when Christ sends his son, you say, well, I thought he was sent. You should have put that in the past tense. Yes, it was in the past tense, but here it's speaking of him coming again, right? Which means we look forward to the day where he will come again. And that message is absolutely proclaimable. And that's why now is the time to repent, to turn from where you were, to turn your back on where you were, and therefore turn back towards God through the person of Christ, trusting him. Why? So that your sins may be blotted out. Peter looks at them and says, hey, you guys were the murderers of Jesus. You cried out, crucify him. But here's the truth. You acted in ignorance, and he stands ready to forgive you. And I love the way Acts chapter 3 wraps that up. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, that's the Jewish people, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. It's the kindness of God, Paul says in Romans, that leads us to repentance. It's the reality that if we turn to him, he will forgive. You say, Phil, not me. Not me. Um, I... uh, I've done things that are too desperate to be forgiven for. If you knew my life, if it was on a screen behind you, I'd have to run from the building in shame because I've done things that I wouldn't want anybody to know. I'm telling you, it's not too great to be forgiven by God. Perhaps you stand and you say, not me. Everybody else, they would do that. I wouldn't do that. Okay. I just want to remind you, Even you must repent, must turn from your confidence in yourself to recognize your need and cling only to the grace of Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me? Maybe this morning you find yourself hearing that message. Let me back up. Maybe you came into the service this morning with a heart heavy with shame. I just want to remind you that uh, God would be saying to you, Just turn to me. It's true. You and I have done things that are wrong. Wicked, sinful things that are wrong. But it's also true that God stands ready to forgive. When Jesus died on the cross, his perfect death paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. And we simply receive that gift of grace, not by anything we do, But by believing, which is why John wrote, as many as believed in him, that is in Jesus, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. You enter God's family by placing your faith in Jesus for what he did. So let me invite you to do that this morning, wherever you are. If you say, Phil, I I know I need him. That part about being in need, I'm in need. Then I would tell you, just humbly say, dear Lord Jesus, I need you. I know I've done things that are wrong. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm turning to you. Please be my Lord, be my Savior. Call out to him and he will not turn you away. For the rest of us, just for a moment, just apply what you should from today's lesson. 
Maybe somebody you know who's in difficulty. Maybe you are in difficulty, but need help kind of restoring your confidence in the word. Whatever it might be, take a moment. Just talk to the Lord about the lessons you've learned that you could apply them. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word. We are grateful. We are thankful. And uh, we just pray that, um, that we would take your word and apply it to our heart today in such a way that we live differently, that the changes in us would be undeniable, not only to those outside, but those who are closest to us as well, that we would live like Jesus, selflessly, washing feet if need be, that we would begin to look more and more like Jesus every day. So we are grateful and thankful. In your son's precious name, in the authority of that name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.